Viv Groskop and I'm here in the glorious city of Edinburgh, slap bang in the middle of the single biggest celebration of arts and culture on the planet to bring you a very special Edinburgh Festival fringe edition of We Are Women. We Are Women is the Mint Velvet podcast. You can get in touch with us via the Mint Velvet Facebook page or Instagram. Every month we bring together fascinating people to chat about the experience of being a woman. And this month we've come to Edinburgh because Edinburgh in August is simply bursting with fascinating people, many of them standing just inches from me now as I stand here in Bristow Square, one of the major venue centres here where I've just come off stage myself for Underbelly, so forgive me if I'm a bit breathless. And speaking of fascinating people, in this special edition, we'll be hearing from Ruby Wax. 98% of you, you have the DNA, you share them with great apes. Uh, 35% of your DNA you share with yeast and 25% with bananas. So get over yourself. From Lucy Porter. If I do have a sense of optimism, it definitely comes from my mum. My mum was one of those, you know, oh, you've lost your legs, never mind, you'll save money on shoes. You know, she was a real... Always look on the bright side. And from Matt Haig. I feel like, you know, if if you go to the dark place and then find the light within it, it's a bit more powerful. And our theme this month, much needed in these trying times, is optimism. So now, via the magic of podcasting, let me lead you out of the hustle and bustle of the heart of Edinburgh into the quiet of the studio to meet our guests. And here we are with just a sprinkling of fairy dust in the studio with two wonderful guests. Matt Haig is an award-winning best-selling writer whose work includes novels, screenplays, children's books and the incredible memoir Reasons to Stay Alive. His writing has been called magical, exquisite and heartwarming, but perhaps nothing beats the critic who called his work simply life-saving. He's here at the Edinburgh Book Festival talking about his new book, Notes on a Nervous Planet, which explores how to feel happy, human and whole in the 21st century. Welcome, Matt. And we also have Lucy Porter. Hello. Who is an actor, writer and comedian whose solid gold talent is basically (laughs) an unavoidable fixture of our TV screens and radios. A favourite of the Fringe, she's been here this year with her show Pass It On, all about what we receive from our ancestors and what we pass on to our kids. She's taking the show on tour all over the country, so do look out for it where you are. And most importantly, she is a friend of this show, having appeared on the very first We Are Women. Welcome, Matt and Lucy. This is so such nice a here. treat. Lovely to be back. Yeah. Now, Lucy, we're speaking to you at the end of the Fringe here. Oh. It's a very stimulating experience, isn't stimulating. it? Stimulating, absolutely. I've been stimulated within an inch of my life. Um, yeah, I'm uh, tired but happy. It is the comedian's equivalent of a marathon, even though it involves no actual sporting uh, prowess or, or physical activity. It's just a, a long slog of doing shows and going out and getting drunk with your friends. How has it affected your capacity, and you have a well-known personal capacity, for optimism? Um, well, I always... I suppose I am quite optimistic, generally, and I always, at the end of this festival, I'm always optimistic that next year will be an even better, more fun, more crazy time. And I've never been proved wrong so far. been doing the festival since 1992. Wow. And it keeps getting better. And yet you look younger every year. I do. 
<laughs> in stand-up, when you do it so many times and you're doing the same show day after day, it's supposed to come from a place of truth, this comedy. How can it possibly be that when you've repeated it so yeah, many times? Yeah, no, there is definitely acting involved. But then, um, you know, you do experience the emotion, though, again. I talk about George Michael. So I talk about my own mother who died and... Um, you know, and that obviously spurs some feelings of grief and that's sort of natural and understandable. But I talk about George Michael every night and every night I get really choked up about the fact that George Michael donated £15,000 to a woman he saw on Deal or No Deal oh, yeah. to pay for her IVF. And I talk about that every night without fail, real tears um, start to emerge. And it's a, it's a funny old, it is a funny old business. I don't know how people who do very, very personal shows do it every no, that must cause... be draining, though, even during an Edinburgh run. Yeah, well, I think like Hannah Gadsby has talked about how when she was doing her show Nanette, which now, of course, is a much celebrated Netflix special, and I saw that on the last day of the Fringe last year, and I did think, I don't know how you can have done that for a month. And I think she said that it, it you know, I mean, it is it's emotional work, but she brings that emotion to it very deliberately because it is something that she really powerfully feels. Matt, you have truth-telling at the heart of what you do and also optimism, especially in your recent work. Is that a skill you think we can cultivate, optimism? Optimism, yeah. I mean, it's weird for me because I used to be the ultimate pessimist and I used to almost think like the job of art or the job of writing or film or music or whatever it was, was to reflect the bleak misery of existence and my honestly my first three novels I can't even read them it's like looking at the worst photos of yourself from like the past and yeah something happened I suppose somewhere in my 30s where I stopped being like that you know and it's it's weird how my experience of like mental illness has actually made me more optimistic because when I was having my sort of full-blown breakdown in my 20s and was uh, had sort of three years solid of depression I was living in a total world of pessimism, but all those things pessimism was telling me didn't happen. You know, I, I thought I wouldn't be alive at 25 and I'm alive at 43. Obviously, bad things happen in life. Um, they do, but optimism would have been a more authentic position for me to have at that point than pessimism. So, weirdly, I owe my depression uh, and that sort of extreme pessimism that sort of broke the cycle of being low-level pessimist. And I feel like, and this is going to be really super pretentious, but I, I have that side of me. Um, That's why we brought you here, Matt. <laughs> but, you know, there's a, I did, in my degree, I did a module on art history, and there's an Italian word, chiaroscuro, which is the contrast of light and shade, which was used by, like, Renaissance painters. It had loads of darkness all around, and then you'd have a face, and the face was brighter because of the darkness all around it. So I feel like, you know, if if you go to the dark place and then find the light within it, it's a bit more powerful. Mm, Brilliant, the, the chiaroscuro. Best, the best comedy is uh, employs chiaroscuro. <laughs> I'm going to be try and be more pretentious and <laughs> yeah, just yeah, say yeah. it in the, the most... Chiaroscuro, <laughs> as I say it. And um, they said she wasn't an actress. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Now, we always ask us a question at the beginning and come back at the end for an answer. Today, we are embracing the spirit of the fringe, so I want you to tell me some story or fact about you and the fringe, which reveals an essential aspect of your personality. Yeah, gosh. Don't ask much, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Our interview with Ruby Wax is coming up, but before that, I 
have some Mint Velvet news. The Mint Velvet Edinburgh store has just relocated to 35A George Street and is now the biggest Mint Velvet store in the UK. So if you're in town, do pop in and browse the latest arrivals, including the very cute new minty kidswear collection. We did just that and asked the team for some insider style tips. And we also asked for their answers to our favourite question. I'm Anna McKenzie and I'm a style advisor at Edinburgh's Mint Velvet. My tip would be always give a top a second chance. Sometimes it doesn't look as it would on someone on a hanger. Like the top I've got on, I've got um, the leopard print um, cold shoulder top. I've never worn leopard print before and I thought, you know what, I'll give it a shot. Tucked it in some high-waisted jeans. I thought, you know what, it looks great. It looks a lot different than it did on the hanger. A lot of people have been saying the same thing. So always give it a second chance, I would say. So I'm Fiona and I'm the store manager. We've got the best-selling leopard print shirt, which is a key trend for the season. And then over the top, a chunky yellow cardigan. I probably wouldn't have until this collection came in put those two together, but now actually going round and trying everything on and thinking, well, actually that yellow does brings out the leopard print and makes it look like cool and fresh. Hi, my name is Natasha Sinclair. I'm the senior styles advisor. My advice to all women is don't feel like you should um, take anyone else's advice if it doesn't feel good in your gut, and that's everything. It could be about your boyfriend, it could be about clothes or anything like that. If you feel comfortable, that's the main thing, um, and it's about you, always. Great, thank you so much. See you later. Thank you all. And to see the pieces they're talking about, just head to the Mint Velvet site or follow at Mint Velvet on Instagram. Those brilliant women have spent the festival gathering tips from visitors to the store about their favourite places to go to in Edinburgh. So if you're planning a trip here or fantasising about a city break, then you can see them all online at the Mint Velvet magazine or do pick up a copy of The List from the store. Lucy, your show explicitly muses on what we inherit from our parents. How much of your mental outlook do you think you inherited from your parents? I think if I do have a sense of optimism and positivity, that it definitely comes from my mum. My mum and dad were sort of yin and yang in that she was... My mum was one of those, you know, oh, you've lost your legs, never mind, you'll save money on shoes. You know, she was a real... (laughs) Always look on the bright side. And then my dad was incredibly sort of pessimistic. And I think maybe I do have... Uh, a combination of the the two traits but um also she was just sort of quite you know her, her mum had had um was bipolar and so my mum had kind of coped with that growing up I think my mum and her sister but of course you know and it wasn't really spoken about at the time so they kind of just got on with it and I think you know when you are feeling bleak acknowledging that is mm. is definitely the healthy thing to do and I sometimes worry that my mum didn't do that enough so that's something that I try and yeah it's an interesting generational thing isn't it well you're, you're both parents how do you find it trying to pass on that kind of good habits for mental health to yeah, your kids I have no idea because <laughs> um I don't know I I Although I try to be optimistic, I'm also neurotic, so I'm continually worried that I'm doing everything wrong as a, as a, as a, as a parent. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, my whole thing with sort of mental health is talking about it like health, you know, because I feel like if you're going to sort of try and get rid of the stigma around mental health, seeing it as health is, is the way to go. And I, when I'm actually ill, I do feel the need to sort of hide it from the kids and protect them from me being ill. I'm, 
But in terms of talking about it after the event, I'm quite open with them. And I think sometimes we're worried as adults that kids can't take as much as they can, actually. It's just how you present things to them. Mm. Well, you had a huge hit with Reasons to Stay Alive, which was a memoir about depression. And then you moved away from that for a while and you've kept on your work as a fiction writer. Then you've come back to the topic with this new book. What was it that brought you back to that? Um, I think, basically, I didn't. I definitely didn't want to write Reasons to Stay Alive 2. I didn't want to do more Reasons to Stay Alive or Reasons to Stay Alive Mission to Moscow. or you know, I didn't want to do this sort of <laughs> obvious Reasons to stay fully secret. alive. <laughs> yeah, live harder. Um, one therapeutic thing for me... Um, that's really helped me, is understanding the links between how I feel and how I live. Um, We do this a lot with physical health. We all know about exercise, diet, sleep and that stuff, but we don't do it really with mental health. And I never used to understand it. So the thing that kept me depressed when I was depressed is that I never knew how I got into the pickle in the first place, so I didn't know how to get out of of it. And because we're in this incredibly like fast-changing technological world where we've all changed how we live and work and fall in love and everything in the last sort of decade um i felt you know we're not really looking at the psychological impact of all that the last book i wrote was about uh, lessons from russian literature and funnily enough there is a whole tolstoy movement that chimes in with this social media stuff i want to read you um the quote that you've got from notes oh, yeah. on a nervous uh, from notes on a nervous planet from tolstoy the more telegraphs, telephones, books, papers and journals there are, the more means there will be of diffusing inconsistent lies and hypocrisies and the more disunited and consequently miserable will men become, which is indeed what we see actually taking place. Wow. Isn't that extraordinary? Wow. That is basically Twitter. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel there's so much, like if you go back 100 years, more than 100 years, that echoes today. I mean, like um, not just Tolstoy, but a bit further down the line um thomas edison who comes across as a little bit of a villain in notes on a nervous planet because he was the first person who thought that felt that technology was going to save us from things like sleep he thought that sleep um was was a sign of ill health and a sign of laziness and uh, it wasn't good for capitalism and it wasn't good for productivity (laughs) he'd have loved the edinburgh festival nobody sleeps at all uh... i didn't sleep last night on george street i've chosen an apartment on george street which was oh that's loud total mistake yeah but um yeah, I, although I, it's handy for mint velvet, of course, so it's got its upsides. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he, 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 Thomas Edison was was the first person who basically said that you know getting up early that makes you a productive um, leader and workman, and you know politicians today, like well, not today, but eighties Thatcher, today Trump, you know they, they love to show off about being awake at three in the morning. Yeah, it's crazy. There's the quote from the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, who says that sleep is the company's main competitor. Isn't that creepy? It is. We need to keep you awake so you can (laughs) watch more programs. (laughs) Matt, you do have, I know, a suggestion for this cacophony that we live with that I think is a very clever one. Aim not to get more stuff done. 
aim to have less stuff to do. Yes. That's clever, isn't it? Very good. Do you think you've managed that in your own life? No, not entirely. I'm a work in progress. One thing I've done is not have my phone by my bed, which I'm, I'm proud of, which sounds ridiculous for that to be a big step in life. But <laughs> I'm still a bad sleeper. I'm always a bad sleeper. So I, I never need an alarm because I'm awake at about half five worrying about something. Yeah. Do you have a watch next to your bed? I'm getting very technical about this now. <laughs> I have a watch on my wrist. So you wear a watch on your yeah, wrist when you go to sleep. Light so I can sleep. You keep your watch on inside your bed when you're sleeping. Yeah. Wow. I, I do, only that do that thing? if I've gone to bed a bit. Uh, it's a similar situation where I haven't taken my makeup off. The watch is still on. No, I would generally take my watch off as well. Mm. Oh, is that... An- Am I abnormal? It just feels like it's cumbersome. <laughs> it just feels like you might scratch your face in the middle of the night because that would be my worry. Are you, I'd if you're good to, with it, then maybe no, we should I'm all start to doing get it. personal. But are you naked apart from the watch? <laughs> just... um, um, I'm, I'm. What do I wear in bed? I, I depending on the time of year it is. Sometimes if it's winter, I'll be pajama bottoms, vest, watch. Brilliant. <laughs> This is a fact. You should do a whole podcast on this alone. Bedtime rituals. Because my kids wake me up. Like, there's no way I need an alarm. There's nothing I need to look at (laughs) on that phone. Yeah, I'm going to. You've changed my life. I'm going to. What is the piece of life advice you most wish you could follow, Lucy? Well, I mean, just the general. I mean, everybody, in, in a sort of physical sense, I know how to live well. But I think it's fascinating that so many of us, me included, do the exact opposite of what we should. And I am, at, you know, absolutely terrible at looking after my, my physical health. And I do eat. If you saw what I eat, I did um, <laughs> at, uh, one of these, what, what's, mm. what's on your plate or whatever. And this woman phoned me up and we did the interview. <laughs> and um, I read the article and she hadn't put anything that I'd said because she obviously thought we cannot put out there what this woman's (laughs) actual diet is because it would be too appalling so she'd everything I'd said I want to do she'd said that I did do which I thought was quite interesting because I very much don't because like when she'll um, she'll make you the Lucy but you know the the, the, the better 2.0 yeah because I said things like of an evening you know god I always end the day really fancying a glass of wine and she put uh, at the end of the day I often feel tempted to a glass of wine but but I abstain and I was like in no way did I ever say. I'm here with the actress, comedian, lecturer, author, mental health campaigner and all-round multi-talented legend that is Ruby Wax. Did I mention she also has great skin? That's really? Irritating, yes. I could go on listing her many guises, achievements and accolades, but that would take up all of the entire interview. I first fell in love with her in the TV show Girls on Top, my favourite, and it was a life goal for me when, as a young journalist, I interviewed her in the back of a taxi from Basingstoke about 20 (laughs) years ago. But she's in town now and here with us. She's doing her show Frazzled and she's here to talk about her latest book, How to Be Human, The Manual, where she sets out to answer life's big questions about what makes us human and how our minds work. Ruby, so lovely to see you. Thanks for coming. Look at your skin forever. How is your fringe experience going? Are you literally frazzled? You do not look it. No, I don't get frazzled because between things, like yesterday, you know, um, in the grass market, there's a graveyard. I lie down there. 
and oh. that pulls me back to reality. This is the that's my happy place where J.K. Rowling pulled a lot of the names for the Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great secret. Go yeah. and lie in a graveyard. Go lie in a graveyard and get real. Wow. Yeah. My first question is an easy one. You've literally written the manual <laughs> on how to be human. What is the secret? People, we live in a time where everybody wants top tips. It's more complicated, and that's why the book starts to uh, 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 de. What is it? Demystify? Uh, no, what, it, we pick it apart. Deconstruct! Put that in. Got it, got it. Okay, so they think I'm smart. All right. You know, we have to understand part of our brain from 400,000 years ago is still in there. So it's, there is a caveman that doesn't realize the wallpaper's changed. So we have these savage instincts. Of course, we live in a world where we're supposed to be ashamed of that. I'm not saying release it. I'm saying be aware we're supposed to be flawed. Everybody now is supposed to be perfect. I have my teeth are perfect. I'm per- we're not supposed to be. Evolutionary-wise, we're still a work in progress. I think I found out that uh, 98% of you is you have the DNA, you share them with great apes. Uh, 35% of your DNA you share with yeast and 25% with bananas. So get over yourself. So the whole thing is get, get get where we are now. Get where thoughts come from. You know, we all have these negative thoughts. Well, don't you want to know why? We need to think more negatively, right? Because, again, hundreds of thousands of years ago, if we didn't turn around and figure out what's wrong, we would have been eaten. But now we're getting stressed about stress. And so the book deals with how to upgrade your mind as much as we've upgraded technology. Yeah. Oh, that is so interesting. I feel like I'm mostly banana now that it's the end of the fringe. It's okay. Embrace it. I'm going to go with it. Um, You mentioned there about stress. This is something we just create. We create the stress on stress, the stress we needed. Otherwise, we wouldn't have progressed. We'd still be, you know, on all fours. So, do we need to stress? Is the petrol? Do we need to stop being stressed, or just be aware of it? Oh, you'd never get out of the house. Hmm. We should really understand when I'm hitting my burnout point. That's the problem is we think, oh, she jogs at four in the morning. She has 17 children. She knows how to make a muffin. Oh, you just described my life, Ruby. Thank you. That's you. you. Okay, (laughs) but that'll kill me. So I have to forgive myself and go, okay, here's my level. And then learn to shut down like you would a computer when it crashes. And then you pull back and go back into it. So it's sort of under self-regulation, reading yourself. We were made perfectly for the environment, but now the environment is too extreme. We're supposed to compete, but you can't compete on a global level. Mm-hmm. And, and is, uh, you know, part of our equipment is to keep up with the next guy, which is great in a tribe because it means everybody's bringing their talent. But when you're competing, you know, some poor girl who wants to be attractive to her little clan, and now she's competing with a supermodel, that self-esteem is going to plummet. Right, I understand. And we're supposed to feel envy, and we're supposed to feel competition. It's just, if it's worldwide, our little brains are still cavemen, as I said. We can't compete, and so we burn out, Mm. and it's our tragedy. Mm. But if you really learn to navigate the noise, you know, use it it when you need it, and then shut it down, that's that's a skill. Mm. That's a skill. Of all the ideas in this book in particular, do you think that one is the one that's had the most impact on your day-to-day life? Yeah, I mean, that's why I went to Oxford. I thought, well, I want to know the reality check here. And so sure enough, if you look in a brain scanner and you watch somebody who learns to self-regulate, it's like looking at somebody who's lifting weights. There is a part of the brain that you can bulk up. So mindfulness is an exercise. It's good. I have depression. 
It doesn't stop you from having depression. There's no miracle. There's no top tip. But, uh, boy, I know when it's coming. And it passed, as awful as it is, after five days rather than five months. Because I stopped the shame. This is a real disease. I took it really seriously. Change your medication, whatever you have to do. But take care of yourself. And that I never did. I used to abuse myself when the depression came because we're not supposed to be flawed. Mm. You know, so I've learned. How many years would you say that journey took you? Well, 12 years ago, I lost my job <laughs> at the VVC. I'll say the word because of being a female. You know, you got to sell by date. I thought I looked spectacular, but clearly there was a flaw. So uh, they uh, demoted me, and I found myself cutting the Costa ribbon for the opening at Terminal 3. And then there's clues that your career might be diving, and you don't want to be desperate and say, do you remember who I was? I always think, reinvent, 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 because we live so long. And in a way, I'm grateful because it made me stop and think, what are you really interested in? I was always interested in the mind. I studied psychology at Berkeley. I thought, now, go for it. Just learn about it. And it became my passion. And how have you found that this new career, how does it compare to your previous career? Do you, do you enjoy it more? Do you feel that Yeah, I would feel more I'm more, I'm, more um, I'm happier in myself because it's nice when people come up and say, oh, I'm like this, this is a human condition. That gives me such pleasure. I really like the contact with people who look me in the eye and say, this is what I'm like. And then I feel less lonely. So I, I, love, I love connecting to people. You're also a real example of some of the scientific processes that you describe in yourself. Uh, you said, I'm amazed I can write books. I wasn't like this as a kid. And if that's not about neuroplasticity, yeah. then what is? Uh, that capacity for change in life as you go through, you can have all these different inclinations. It's such a hopeful idea. Did that really help you? Well, there is neuroplasticity. And if everybody understood science a little bit, it'd be more liberating than knowing what star sign you are. I'm sorry. I know there's big fans. I'm an Aries. Let's get it out of the way. But neuroplasticity is not the next fad. Your brain does change. Every second it's changing. You're caught in certain habits because you have to have consistency. But if you start breaking down the bad habits, not by shouting at yourself because that just makes you smoke more, you know, but by gently noticing this is a habit. I do this every time. I'm always seeing myself as a victim. You start to notice those thoughts. They do start to let go, you know, and the neurons start to unlock. They're not, you're not held so much in a cage of an identity. And then you can intentionally create new habits. Our theme on this podcast is optimism. Is optimism something that comes naturally no, to you? No, no. <clears throat> my drug of choice is rage. Am I optimistic? I think we can change. And I think, as I say in my show, we have enough thumbs. We go fast enough, thanks to Uber. But now it will have to evolve by us doing something intentionally to our minds to keep up with what's going on in the world, to just be able to bear it. And then the most important thing is kids learn this stuff. What would childhood Ruby think of the person that she you would not believe now? it? I mean, I had no hope. I would have been a serial killer or a comedian with the family I came from. It was yeah, dark, you had dark. Tough parents, tough. to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have believed this. Uh, my dad thought I'd be, you know, a heroin addict by 40. And my mother thought I was a moron. This is a mental moron. So I, I didn't, I never read. I couldn't concentrate. Now I kind of understand 
that I was traumatized. That's why as a kid I was blank. But I was funny, and that got me... If I wasn't funny, I wouldn't have survived it. I mean, that was a life raft. So for me, at this age, to suddenly turn on the engines and get into Oxford is a... It's, it's not a miracle, it's work. It's real work, but... We work for everything. You know, if you didn't practice standing up when you're a baby, you wouldn't stand. If you didn't practice English, you wouldn't be speaking. Everything is a discipline. So so is intelligence. Amazing. Ruby, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope that's okay. It was great. Thanks. Deconstruct. Just <laughs> stick it in. How come I couldn't think of it? I can't let it go, that thing Ruby said in that interview about being past her sell-by date at the BBC. I wondered what you thought of that, Yeah, Lucy. yeah, yeah. No, it is, I mean, it is interesting that you kind of realise that the work opportunities do start to diminish. And I, I think it is for increasingly for men as well that there is, you know, you're a, a veteran. In fact, um, the comedian Alistair Barry was pointing out that the, the Comedy Awards shortlist came out and uh, the Guardian put uh, veteran stand-up comedian Felicity Ward, and I mean, Felicity oh, wow. Ward's like thirty-seven or something. Oh, no. <laughs> and he was Ward like, "In what young. other than professional sports would you be considered a veteran at thirty-seven? But um, I mean, it, you know, it forces you to adapt. And I think that often women do their most interesting work. And look at what Ruby Wax has done in reinventing herself and and finding another path in life. And I know loads of of people who've who've had to do that because we're entering this age this sort of robotic age we, we've got to start being proud of being imperfect and it, you know if you look at this sort of trend whether it's plastic surgery whether it's just like you know good looking film stars 30 years ago versus good looking film stars today you know with their perfect teeth hairline perfect everything's heading towards us looking like cyborgs and it's like well, well soon there's going to be these real actual you know, in Japan, they've got robotic sex dolls and, you know, that's the future of the um, sex industry. And we, we've got to start differentiating ourselves. Our USP, you know, we're never going to be able to compete with sort of perfect machinery. So we've got to start embracing our messy, sweaty I don't think selves. a Japanese sex doll is any competition for a good-looking man in a watch. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't wear a watch in bed, would they? <laughs> they wouldn't. Um, you have both built a huge trust uh, with your audiences. It's something you both have in common in your work. Does that come with any complications? I think that now the boundary between artist and audience mm. is much more fluid and that can be hard to deal with. But generally, I think it's it's great because you don't have to wait to be interviewed so that your fans can read all about how amazing you are. So I think it's, it's really... <laughs> all the lies about yeah, your yeah, diet. Yes, exactly <laughs> that, exactly. It's not, you know, you're not creating this idealised picture of yourself through journalists. Of course, you're still creating a, a slight fiction because you're not and nobody is warts and all uh, on the internet and I mean that that in itself is a bit worrying but I think it's quite healthy that you know you can you know you write stuff and people can react to mm. it and people can say you know actually I didn't like that or I did like that and um, it's been it's been good for me I think yeah, it's generally been good for me too. I think there was one downside when, um, because Reasons to Stay Alive was my first sort of properly successful book, um, 
I felt suddenly quite exposed and I had lots of emails from people saying, oh, your, your book really helped me and stuff. But I was going through a, a massive sort of anxiety dip at that point. So I was feeling like a total fraud. I was thinking like, why can't my own advice help me? And I had a little sort of crisis and I think that's why I sort of ran away into fiction again. But yeah, generally, I think I think it, it's very good. And it's sort of, cre- it's it's gone back to sort of like the campfire where you're sort of eye to eye with the people you're communicating with and they can be involved in what you're communicating with you know i include even te- uh, tweets and stuff and the things i test out titles and stuff and obviously there's a certain type of literary author the sort of jonathan franzen-esque type of literary author who thinks this is all sort of end times and it's uh, it's terrible and the sky's caving in but i think it's absolutely creatively liberating mm, come and, and sit round the campfire Jonathan Franz <laughs> <laughs> join us left Jonathan. a place for you <laughs> we've got marshmallows <laughs> and finally tell me a tale about the fringe I asked you at the beginning to think about this Matt this is a hard one for you because yeah. you don't have as many no. years of veteran experience no. as veteran comedian no, uh, so, so what we've worked out as a parent at the fringe um, because we did years when we were younger of going to to sort of avant-garde Polish puppet shows, um, <laughs> reworking Grimm's fairy tales, uh, quite painful um, exercises in how sli- slow time can go. Um, but circuses we've discovered with children. There's a lot of good circuses in Edinburgh. Something for all the family, as it were. Circuses are quite a good choice before they're old enough to watch you and Lucy do your stuff. Excellent. That's a very good plus. way of finishing that. Yes. Lucy, what is your fringe tale that tells us something essential about you? Oh, I suppose. Um, I, well, I suppose. So this year, I had one day where I went and saw six shows in one day. Wow. I know, right? And then the next day, I spent the entire day in John Lewis. <laughs> I think that reveals everything you need to know about me. But uh, which was the better day? I, you know the answer to that, Matt. Come on, let's let's be honest. And of course, John Lewis in Edinburgh has a mint velvet concession. That's where so, I spent so. most of my time. That's right. <laughs> my fringe tale, which reveals everything you know need to know about me and my life, is when I did a terrible, terrible free fringe show about five or six years ago now, and it was my first experiment with doing a show in Edinburgh. I just did 10 nights and I did it on the free fringe in this hideous, derelict building, basically. Mm. And when you do a free fringe show, you have to say to the audience, well, it was free to get in, but it's not free to get out. So you do your bucket speech and then you go and stand by the door with a bucket. And I was thinking, I think I'd turned 40 that year. And I was thinking, I'm 40 and I'm standing (laughs) by a door with a bucket asking people for money. And one woman came up and said, I'm so sorry, I've only got euros. I'm just back from the Dordogne. And gave me, I think, a 10 or 20 euro note in my bucket, which, of course, I was very grateful for. But I did think, Viv, you need to find a nice place for these people to go to. And Mm. it's not here. So then I moved off the free fringe and started doing shows other places. That's all for now. Until the next time, you can get in touch via the Mint Velvet Facebook page or catch us on Instagram at Mint Velvet. 
Thanks so much to our guests, Lucy Porter, Matt Haig and Ruby Wax. We Are Women is a Whistledown production for Mint Velvet. The producer is Kate Taylor. I'm Viv Groskop. From all of us here at the Edinburgh Fringe, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>